Conveyancing Coffee Break, the bite-sized podcast for busy conveyancing professionals, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance. My name is Mandy Brown, and during these episodes, we'll be discussing topical and relevant issues and case studies on a whole raft of conveyancing subjects. Welcome to the second episode of Conveyancing Coffee Break, where we discuss some of the cases mentioned in our recent conferences. Today, we'll be discussing the case of the Sequent Nominees versus Houtford, Competition Act 1998, and changes to planning use classes. Joining me today, as always, is Richard Snape. And also today, asking the questions, we have Ian Fishman, partner at Fishman Brand Stone, who specialises in commercial and residential property. Thrilled to have you both on Convincing Coffee Break. Thanks for joining us. Ian, I understand you have some questions for Richard. Yes, no, thank you. Uh, Good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you for inviting me onto this podcast. Yes, uh, in relation to this case of sequent nominees and Hartford and the significance in relation to user covenants, can you give me some more background to this case and uh, the significance of of the decision in it and how basically that decision impacts elsewhere. Yeah, sure. I'll tell you the background facts of it um, in a bit more detail than I had a chance to do in the the actual conference. Uh, It all took place in uh, London, Soho, a place called Brewer Street. And it was a a uh, six-storey building, five up, uh, above-ground storeys and a basement. And it, uh, 30 years previously, the tenants had entered into a 100-year lease. They still occupied the basement where they were running an ironmongers, but the five upper floors had been uh, sublet, uh, two of them to, for commercial properties and two the upper two for residential. Um, they had residential use for the upper storeys, in terms of planning. Um, and the lease itself didn't bar residential use. Uh, the user covenant said they could be used for either residential or commercial purposes. And that's the surprising thing about it, the case and the decision, which will live to regret, I suspect, for many years. Uh, the background to it was that, uh, although there was no bar to residential use, there was a provision whereby if the landlord uh, Sorry, if the, if the tenant wanted to obtain planning permission, uh, then they had to get the landlord's consent uh, not to be unreasonably withheld to the planning application. And the tenant wanted to uh, obtain planning permission to uh, get to residential use for two of the other floors, subject to commercial use only at the moment. And the landlord basically... That's the... That's the um, oh, yeah, because you mentioned that there were two upper floors that, that were subsequently yeah, commercial. made that clear. The two upper floors had residential use, so there was no planning issues there. Uh, they wanted to convert the, the tenant uh, to the, the lower floors, two of the three lower floors to residential use. But they got to get the landlord's consent at the time, at least to do that. And uh, the landlord objected and refused consent to the planning application, not to the change of use. That's the interesting thing, but it's an indirect way of doing the same thing. And the landlord objected because uh, they were worried that uh, if it becomes primarily residential, you know, uh, uh, four of these six floors are residential, 
the tenant will have more chance. He could still have a chance, actually, but more chance to uh, enfranchise and buy the freehold uh, of the premises under the 67 Leasehold Reform Act. And that was the background fact. So that's what gave rise to the litigation. Um, in the Court of Appeal, the landlord failed. Uh, there'd been a case which was in the notes, but I didn't actually mention it, uh, a case called Bickland, the Duke of Westminster in 1977. I didn't really mention it in great detail because uh, the law has changed subsequently uh, in this particular area. It was about part one of the 54 Landlord and Tenant Act, which is not really applicable anymore. But suffice to say, the tenant uh, wanted to assign the premises to an individual. It was a corporate tenant at the moment. And they wanted to assign it to an individual. Um, and uh, the landlord said no, because five years hence, the individual would have the right to enfranchise. Uh, and the court decided in that particular case, then that was a, a valid reason for refusing. I think everybody always accepted that Bickle depends on its facts. You know, we're not talking about sort of years down the line. Uh, you know, there was still 70 years left on this lease. And that's about basically what the Court of Appeal said. But uh, they went to the Supreme Court. And just before Christmas of 2019, the Supreme Court, by a bare majority, three to two, uh, refused consent to the planning application. So basically, they uh, there was no breach of user covenants, but you can do the same in a roundabout way by just refusing consent if it's needed for, for the planning application. And that's some of the background to it. I mean, you've got to accept it's correct uh, because uh, it's a Supreme Court decision, but it flies in the face of so much we thought. The, the, the major judgment was by Lord Briggs and they basically said that everything should be decided as to whether it's reasonable to give you, a, you know, consent to the application at the time of the court hearing or at the time of the, the actual objection, more likely. Lots of cases, going back to a case called Bates and Donaldson in 1896, had said otherwise. Um, and it's a real change of circumstances. And uh, the major dissenting judgment uh, was basically Lord Wilson, uh, who said that, pointed out the obvious, you know, you've negotiated this sort of relaxed user covenant. Uh, you've probably paid, more, well, you will have paid money for it, you know, either by way of higher rental because you don't get something for nothing in commercial property or by way of a higher premium. But indirectly, the landlord can block, you know, your wishes by just refusing consent to a planning application. And I say there are large numbers of cases going back many, many years that say as a matter of interpretation, you decide things at the date the, the, the lease was you know, sort of um, entered into when you were negotiating in the contract. There'd been a Supreme Court case, uh, which uh, people might remember on ground rents and uh, escalating ground rents, Arnold and Britain, to late 2015, where they basically said the same thing that, you know, you've got to decide everything at the time the contract's entered into and not years later down the line. And they decided not to follow that. Do you think the sort of current sort of uh, government policy in relation to and because of what's happened in, in lockdown in relation to converting yeah. businesses, uh, commercial users to residential. Do you think that will have an impact on this sort of case in the uh, future? Yeah, I should have stressed actually before I'll get on to that, but uh, the Supreme Court and Supreme nominees also said that the law would be equally applicable to uh, user covenants, anything where there's consent required not to be unreasonably withheld, alienation covenants, alteration covenants. 
and the landlord can take out into account their own interests as yeah. long as the tenant's interests don't far outweigh the landlord's. Mm-hmm. It was held they didn't far outweigh the landlord's a, a strong burden. Uh, so it does apply to things like user covenants as well. But as you quite rightly said, Ian, um, in England, I stress not Wales, but uh, I have to stress that nowadays because planning permission is the uh, one area above all, which is getting very, very different for England and Wales. Um, they, uh, they're going through a massive overhaul of planning, as you quite rightly said. And there's quite a lot of things out there that won't need uh, planning permission for a change of use. Mm. I mean, the starting point was back in well, September of last year, September the 1st, where with a few exceptions, and there's still transitional provisions whereby you can use either or, uh, the old or long provision until July and the end of July, um, whereby the old classes A1, 2, and 3, which is retail, professional services, and uh, restaurants and cafes, and the old class B, which is business use, were all subsumed into one big class E. Mm. So suddenly, not just in terms of conversion into residential, but across the board, you're not going to need planning permission for a change of use to convert your your office into a solicitor's practice or whatever it might mm. be. But it, it, with residential, doesn't that only apply? Isn't didn't you mention previously? Isn't it right? It's got to be below a certain. Well, that's not that's not actually enforced yet. There, there have been things for a few years in England. Again, most notably, you can convert uh, offices in. It's subject to something called prior approval. The council can object on the grounds of noise or contamination, or flood risk and the likes. But uh, they. Um, you can convert uh, offices already into uh, residential units. Mm. Huge numbers of offices in the towns and cities are now, you know, they've almost reached saturation point. And that, well, currently at least, is without any kind of floor area limit. You could, again, uh, convert retail uh, into residential without a change of use at the moment. But that's only with a maximum 150 square meters internal floor area at yeah, the that's, moment. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, and uh, they, uh, but the government sort of, well, they, there was a white paper last uh, last summer that the government introduced, which was very controversial. Uh, so controversial, we didn't hear much about it until they laid the uh, the order, the Town and Country Planning Amendment uh, Order 2021 Amendment, England Order 2021 in front of Parliament. Uh on the day Parliament went into its Easter break, uh, which was, uh, I think, March the 31st. So it didn't get any parliamentary scrutiny. These things rarely do. And uh, passed through Parliament on April the 21st. It actually comes into force on August the, uh, the 1st. So it's not quite in force yet. It um, introduces a new class MA, which is uh, Mercantile Abode. That's the fancy name for it, uh, which means you can convert the new class E, the super business class, into C3 dwellings, not houses of multiple occupation, but dwellings subject to prior approval again, but also subject to things like, uh, well, it's got to be uh, a maximum gross internal floor area of 1,500 square metres. So in, in fact, with offices, they're sort of saying that you know it's going to be more stringent, if you like. But I say the offices have been converted to resi, have been reached saturation point by now. Uh, holds of residents all over the place, and I'm not sure we'll have as many overseas students occupying them for the next year or two. 
Um, and also, there's got to be a two years previous commercial use, and uh, it's got to have been vacant for three months. So all these redundant retail units and the likes, if they are there, I'm not sure there'll be as many as people make out, and not just because of COVID, but because that's the way the big you know, the retail sector is going, because comp- competition from you know, online uh, can be converted into residential, subject to prior approval. It does, you know, if you're going to alter, you'll need to you know, possibly get planning permission anyway. And there are quite a few exceptions. You know, if it's a listed building, it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply in national parks and the likes. Um, so there are quite a few exceptions and don't make your application until August the 1st. But uh, yeah, so there's lots of things are going to basically bypass the problem in sequent nominees because you won't need a change of use anyway in terms of planning. Mm. I think there's a lot of other issues that uh, commercial property lawyers are going to have to think carefully about because you know, it's a piece of planning legislation. People tend to leave it to the planners. You know, what you can't do, because who knows what's around the corner, what you can't do is just list, you know, classes, you know, A, B, C, whatever it might be as the, the permitted use, because that's all very much redundant in England now. Um, and on the other hand, a lot you think about this, Ian, I think commercial property lawyers and landlords and uh, the surveyors and the likes and valuers have got to sit down. And if planning permission is rapidly becoming a, you know, not becoming a way of stopping use class changes, you make sure it's in the lease itself and the user covenants. Uh, you ban- so, what, so, so, so how would you amplify that in the user covenant? Then? Well, I'd make clear if suddenly we find that I can't, as a landlord, prevent you uh, through that sort of, not giving you permission to obtain planning permission. I can't sort of prevent you um, changing use. I can still, all the contractual provisions, or if you're dealing with, you know, freehold restrictive covenants, likewise, still apply. And according to sequent nominees, if the landlord puts a sort of ban on that type of use, not to be unreasonably withheld, Mm. it's going to be a lot easier than we thought uh, two years ago to, to refuse consent. I think um, you've got to sit down with the landlords and, you know, where appropriate, the surveyors and the mics, and think about the effect on valuations. And if I don't want residential use for that block, because I don't think it's going to, the premises is going to be as valuable, I'm going to ban residential use or ban residential use subject to getting consent and use it through the user covenants. Or if I don't want that premises to be an office or to be a solicitor's practice, I want it to be kept as a shop. You ban any other user subject to consent or mm. ban it outright. Okay. okay. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. I think you've got to um, think carefully again, though, in the current market as to whether you really want to keep things like residential use um, because um, people might be aware that uh, May the 14th, there was a Supreme Court case on um, business rates and empty properties and avoidance schemes it was specifically about two types of case called Hurstwood and the Rossendale Borough Council. And uh, it was specifically about um, um, the uh, schemes that some of you may have come across, which uh, whereby you set up a, an off-the-shelf company, a special purpose vehicle, and then shut it down, basically. You either dissolved it or you, you wound it up. And uh, as a way of avoidance of, uh, of your your, your business rates on your empty properties because empty properties in 
um, liquidation don't pay, or companies are in li- li- liquidation don't pay business rates. And the court, uh, so the Supreme Court has decided they are void. And I suspect before too long, they'll be saying the same about other schemes used to avoid business rates and empty properties. And property owners, I suspect, would rather have anybody in occupation than pay business rates, especially in some parts of the country. So it's going to be a trade-off, I think, you know, not to change use without consent, not to be unreasonable with health. So is there anything else you want to discuss on that case? Or I think that's about it. I say oh. want to stress the fact that they made quite clear it applies equally to all kind of consents, which most mm. obviously are user alienation and alterations. And we will live to regret the day they decided that we are completely in limbo as to some of the older cases. And do they still apply? Um, the uh, Competition Act, nineteen ninety-eight. I think you you mentioned that briefly in the in, in yeah, your yeah. lecture. Can can you sort of expand on 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 this act? And can you sort of again? Have there been any specific cases arising? And, um, you know, what what is the significance, really, of this Act? Well, yeah, it's um, something I think people need to be aware of. It is quite a specialist area. And, you know, when you do these one-hour Zoom conferences, you can't go into everything in great detail. Um, I think some landlords, especially people like local authority landlords and the likes, uh, might have issues and problems with it. It is a 1998 piece of legislation. It's an EU piece of legislation, if you remember them. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's, it survives at least for the time being the uh, Brexit. Uh, it's a 1998 piece of legislation, which has been around for most uh, situations since, since the early 2000s. It didn't come in, in the UK originally took the um, ability to exclude land agreements. So the property lawyers, the real property lawyers wouldn't have seen it for, anything about it for many years. But uh, that exclusion came to an end uh, on April the 6th, uh, 2011. And it basically says that uh, it's relevant for sort of user covenants again, but you you can't divorce alienation and user covenants, really. Uh, It says that uh, you can, if you enter into, if an undertaking, an economic activity, if you like, enters into an agreement which uh, distorts, prevents or restricts competition in the marketplace. They're in breach of the uh, chapter one, it is, of the Competition Act. Uh, It's got to prevent, restrict, distort uh, competition. It's highly complex. If you wanted to know more, you probably need a bit of specialist advice. Um, Because you've got to first think about, you know, what is the marketplace, you know, and there is a defence that uh, the, the efficiencies involved get passed on to the consumer. You know, got these highly restrictive user covenants, but that allows you to sell your product. It's what the petrol stations always claim, uh, you know, in sort of soulless agreements, as they were called. The guidance says it's got to be substantial. So there's OFT guidance galore on this. And the suggestion is that it's 30%. Uh, you've got 30% of the market in that particular locality, but it's very difficult to decide what the market is. You know, if you're in the city centre where there's dozens of different units to go to, it's less likely to be a breach of the Competition Act, whereas if you're in rural areas or the suburbs, it's more likely. The first case uh, was a case, it was only a county court case, so it's not actually a precedent, but it's a good illustration of where it might be applicable. 
It was a case called Martin Retail Group and um, Crawley Borough Council. And uh, in this particular case, uh, it was a, a parade of shops somewhere in Crawley, don't ask me where, where the council were the landlords. These are suburban, you know, a suburban row of shops, not in the town centre and the likes. And they got all these restrictive covenants so they could have a good match of uh, units, if you like. You, know, you wouldn't have the same shops selling the same product. Martin Retail were, um, they were news agents. Uh, they were running news agents and they got user covenants to allow that. Uh, and uh, also with things like tobacconists and uh, they could sell kids' toys and this kind of thing. And there were various others, you know, there were 10 other shops had different, it's like one was a mini supermarket, there was a takeaway. Sounds like a student's paradise, you know. There was a hairdresser's bakery, that kind of thing, chemist, you know, the kind of thing that you get in these places. Uh, and they, uh, they're actually going through a lease renewal. I've seen it. it it's, it's easier to argue this when you're going through a lease renewal because you're already there, if you like. And they argued this restrictive user covenant you've got to be a news agents uh, is a breach of the Competition Act um, because we wanted, they wanted it to be a convenience store selling more products. And they basically already got one convenience store. You've got a suburban row of shops. You know, that's its own little market, if you like. Um, uh, you know, sort of how far would you go uh, to get your, to go to the news agents? You're probably not going to go a mile or two into the town centre or something. So it's its own market. They didn't do themselves any justice by not putting any evidence up as to, you know, whether there was any consumer benefits, which allows us to sell the products cheaper. Uh, it was suggested, it's been suggested in subsequent you know, articles and the likes, you should get some independent expert along if needs be to show what the consumer benefits are. They just relied on a, an employee of the uh, of the, the council to try and argue the consumer benefits and uh, the user covenants were changed on a, on a lease renewal. I've, I've seen it, it's not been much litigated, but I've seen it argued in those kind of circumstances. You know, I think I mentioned one I came across on the edge of Swansea where there was, you know, you were objecting to the fact there's one Chinese restaurant, there's one Thai restaurant and so on. Uh, and uh, those kind of things, but it's got to have its own little market. I think people like local governments, uh, where they have these, you know, rows of shops, these little suburban parades of shops, are the ones who need to think about it. Because there is the, it's not a legal point, but there, there is sort of like the the uh, argument that you know, with like with the shoe shops, if you've got six shoe shops, actually everyone converges on the area because they know there's a lot. There's a load of shoe shops there or or restaurants or whatever. So it's interesting. Yeah. There's no problem with restaurants. It's probably more look when you um this can be an Indian restaurant and only an Indian restaurant. Mm. This can only be a Chinese restaurant, that kind of thing. That's where it's more likely to be a problem. The transaction, if it was a breach, would be void. Uh, and also you could substantial fines as well, and you could also be sued in damages. I've seen it argued. It's I don't know how much it, I don't think it's argued as much as it was when it came in in 2011. Because I know because I do a lot of work for local government, as some people who are listening to this will know. Uh, and uh, I know local authorities were getting very worried about it. Probably I have to say over worried about it back in 2011. But uh, I've seen it more as a negotiating tool mm -hmm. than a, you know threatening litigation. We don't want that highly restrictive user covenant.
uh, or as I say, as in the Martin retail case itself on a, on a lease renewal, we want the relaxed user covenants. Okay. And it can, I mean, once you get your relaxed user covenants, you, you, know, you don't get something for nothing, as I mentioned, and it should be reflected in the rental anyway. Valuers should be putting the rent up. Yeah. Okay. Any comments on that? It's something to think about in certain circumstances, but not where you've got loads of premises altogether. Well, that certainly provided some food for thought, and thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. You have been listening to another episode of Conveyancing Coffee Break, the only podcast for busy conveyancing professionals, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance, the UK's leading provider of title insurance. For more information on our free conferences, go to www.lawshoreinsurance.co.uk where you can download recent conference recordings.